and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're going behind the scenes at the world's leading genomics institute to find out what it takes to make big science happen and hear the stories behind the sequencing. Before we start, a few dates for your diary. You'll want to get a wriggle on if you're thinking of applying for one of the Society's Junior Scientist Conference Grants to attend either an online or in-person conference, as the deadline is coming up on the 1st of August. That's also the deadline for this quarter's round of Heredity Fieldwork Grants, with up to £2,000 available to cover travel and accommodation costs associated with a field-based genetic research project. Also coming up on the 15th of August is the deadline for applications for the next round of Genetic Society training grants, each up to £1,200 to enable members to attend formal short training courses or visit another lab to train in specific techniques. To find out more about all these opportunities and apply, head over to the grants section of the Genetic Society website, that's genetics.org.uk, or follow the links on the page for this episode on our website, geneticsunzip.com. Cordelia Langford is the Director of Scientific Operations at the Wellcome Sanger Institute, just outside Cambridge in the UK. Over the past couple of decades, her career has taken her from the early days of DNA sequencing using radioactive chemicals and a ruler through to the birth and delivery of the Human Genome Project 20 years ago and on to overseeing today's industrial-scale sequencing pipelines, churning out millions of genomes from humans and other species all over the world. Today, she runs a department of about 300 people responsible for generating the information and resources that power the world-leading genomics research at the Institute. Rather than taking a conventional route into a scientific career in the UK, that's usually A-levels, a degree and then a master's or PhD, Cordelia didn't get the grades she needed to pursue her dream as a doctor. Instead, she took a sideways journey, starting from a sixth form placement at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, through a range of technician jobs, to eventually doing a PhD and a role as a researcher at Cambridge University. That's where she really fell in love with the double helix. DNA, chromosomes and all the stuff of life that makes us who we are. And the rest, as they say, is history. One of the things that I found really intriguing was just wanting to know more and more about those individual constituents of of cells, how they are structured. The structure of chromosomes was a major theme of my PhD when I eventually got to doing that. And my PhD specifically focused on using really cutting edge technologies and techniques to find ways of understanding how chromosomes have evolved through the evolution of mammals. I was specifically focused on developing and enhancing the techniques that were used for analysing human chromosomes using flow cytometry and broader molecular cytogenetic techniques. So it was a combination of these different techniques that I was really getting my teeth into. And I hadn't been at the University of Cambridge post for very long when my line manager Nigel Carter, who was a researcher leading the development of these technologies, he announced that he'd been appointed to the the Sanger Centre, as it was then known, and it was still in its very early days, and he'd been appointed to lead 
a brand new molecular cytogenetics lab at the Sanger. And this was met with a bit of, um, well, excitement for Nigel because it had been recognised right at the start by the founders of the Sanger Centre that molecular cytogenetics could play a really key role leading towards developing the maps of the human genome. So he was appointed, and I'm really glad to say he realised that flow cytometry would also have to play a major part. I then gained a position at the Sanger Centre then. And I, I joined 29 years ago, and I was, I think, employee, something like number 70 or something like that. And I can still remember my first day, because I'd love to share that there was a lot of excitement. There was a buzz of people talking about the Sanger Centre. And in some cases, some people were saying the technology that's being used for sequencing the genome it's just going to mean that no one can ever compete with this. And of course, we know that that's now wrong. But also this excitement of this, this one core, just game-changing project that I think people were really motivated to be a part of. So it was an absolute privilege to be able to gain a role and contribute to that and be there at the start as well. I did my undergraduate projects at the Human Genome Mapping Project, which is like a sort of little enclave within the, the Sanger Centre. And that was back in 97, 98. I did two summer studentships there. And it was a, a much smaller site. I think it's now enormous. It's a genuine, like, this was all fields when I was here. But yeah, it was incredibly exciting seeing the early days of the sequencing starting to happen. But also, like, it was not very good. It was very slow. You could do a few hundred base pairs at a time. So I, I wonder if you could talk then about going from those days when it's like the technology is really just starting going to move from being able to see chromosomes to actually read DNA sequences and start to do more stuff to probe what's actually going on with the genetics of cells as they're doing their thing and you know making life happen. I appreciate that you're saying that it felt like it was really slow at the time, but I'd come from an earlier lab where we were using the previous techniques for sequencing a tiny bit of a genome. This was actually of a, a parasitic nematode worm and using the radioactive techniques that just took forever. Every single base, as, as I can see you're nodding and you, put, you probably remember this because we had to run these huge gels, took ages, and every single base had to be manually read, running a ruler across an autoradiograph of the gel it was an incredibly slow process, but at the time was cutting edge. Fast forward a couple of years to the Sanger Center, and there were automatic machines that were, again, using fluorescent techniques to automatically run those sequencing experiments and, and having a digital readout. That at the time seemed just mind-blowing with the amount of sequence that could be done. But again, you know, looking back, it was still a, you know, maybe a few hundred bases every so often. And we were just celebrating this amazing capability. Over the years, I think everyone who was there at the start was thinking, oh, it's all going to be done in five years because they obviously the people who organize all be done in five years and then we'll move on and do something else. What a thrill. But of course, what we now know is that clearly the technology needed to advance and it certainly did so, whether it was through enhanced so-called capillary sequencing, where we were still using the technique that was designed by Fred Sanger. So Fred Sanger, the Nobel Prize winner, after whom the Sanger Centre and now the Sanger Institute was named. 
So we were using that technique, albeit at an increased scale over the years. But it wasn't just the technology that was scaling. It was also the membership and the number of people and staff who were working at the Sanger Centre at the time dramatically increased. So we went from the, around about 70 people all the way up to 400. And those 70 to 400 or so people, we were all working on one project. Everyone knew everyone's name. There were a lot of fantastic milestones and celebrations. And it was a bit of a sort of party atmosphere, albeit we had a really serious job to do. And it was very collaborative because the realisation was that no one place could sequence the human genome. So there was an increase in people. And um, as the first draft of the human genome was completed, the data that was now available opened up all sorts of possibilities. So the Sanger Centre itself was then reinvented as a research institute where there were researchers and faculty with different types of scientific focus, all of which centred on using genomic information to then dig in and understand much more about the workings of cells, the workings of organisms that would be implicated in helping us understand more about the development of disease. I do love that idea. Like, yeah, five years, job done. We'll have the genome. We'll know everything. You're like, oh, yeah, no, now we need to understand how it works. <laughs> well, you've said it perfectly because I, I still remember to this day, even when the first draft So it took longer than five years, as we know. But when the first draft was completed, again, I think I was thinking, oh, great, we're we're probably going to now be able to cure cancer. And I I can remember saying something similar to that to John Salston. And he said, oh, hang on, you know, not so fast. You know, that was hard work. Now the hard work really started. This is just the beginning. We have literally just got to the sort of starting line. And that was a little bit sort of mind-blowing because, again, it sort of felt like, well, hang on, we've been working really hard to get to this milestone. But of course, as soon as you get to a major scientific milestone, it just opens the door to another series of really exciting and enticing corridors that and you, you, one then chooses a, a path to go down. So he was absolutely right, of course. And I mean, what a wise and knowledgeable <laughs> uh, researcher and scientist. But at the time, it was really shocking to hear that we didn't just stop and then suddenly cure cancer. Yeah, when I wrote my book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, I did write a bit about this idea. It's like, now we've got the code, the language in which God wrote life, and we're going to have all the answers. And um, two decades later, it's like, "Mm, yeah, it feels like we've only now really started to get the technology to actually unpack what the genome is, how it works, how it's different between people, all, all these kinds of things. Indeed. And I think coming back to the technology, you can probably tell I really love the technology. <laughs> you big old nerd. <laughs> During that time frame where we were transitioning and building as a research institute, there was probably the most significant introduction of new sequencing technology that's still referred to as next generation sequencing, even though it's been through a number of rounds of enhancements since then. But next generation sequencing or NGS was a a very different way of running sequencing technology that meant that many millions, and in some cases billions of strands of DNA, could be sequenced in parallel in one sequencing reaction. And that really, I think, was such a significant game changer that unlocked the imagination and the inspiring thinking of many more scientists. And we take next generation sequencing for granted today. What I love saying is having been part of the original human genome sequencing project, we there are numerous quotes of 
10 years, thousands of people, billions of dollars to sequence one genome, and, and that was draft. And now in the departments that I'm involved in running today, we have multiple next generation sequencing instruments where a single human genome or the equivalent of single human genome is kind of turned out every six minutes or so for the approximate cost of about $400 or something like that. And that in itself means that scientists can think bigger. They can think so much further. What is it that I need to do to be able to generate statistically relevant and interpretable data? How can I best apply the access to this technology in order to be able to translate my scientific questions into improving human health or or the health of the globe, actually? I do get the feeling that we've gone from this sort of artisan DNA sequencing, you know, you're doing it by hand, you're marking off little autoradiograph bands to being able to do this on an industrial scale. It's a whole pipeline, like sample goes in, DNA comes out, analysis is done, information is there. As the process has been scaling, you've been involved in the operations as everything's kind of scaled up, you know, more things come with more problems. What have been some of the biggest challenges that have had to be solved as the entire process of genomics has scaled up? For me, my main answers always always start with um, you can have as much technology at your fingertips, but none of it happens without highly skilled people. So one of the real unique advantages of the Sanger Institute is teams of motivated technical specialists, as well as teams who are involved in supporting the delivery of the technical work. And um, what these people are able to do is to become trained and knowledgeable to be able to do the sort of the work around that really brings that technology to life. There's also something about the environment. So the sorts of laboratories that we run our sequencing in, for example, here at, at Sanger, are custom built. They're designed to enable us to have sufficient flexibility to adapt and to bring in new technologies or new instrumentation as they develop, but also large enough and with the right sort of airflow and power supplies and waste systems that enable us to to work at that industrial scale that you mentioned earlier. And it does feel like that sometimes. It's a mix of industrial scale technology with amazing technologists and specialists that are sort of bringing it to life and making it happen. I did want to ask, out of all the collaborations you mentioned, people coming to you to sequence quite strange things, are there any that stick in your mind as being particularly like, wow, okay, we'll give that a go? I I immediately think of the 25 Genomes Project. For the 25th anniversary of the Sanger, it was decided or proposed to sequence 25 new genomes. And in fact, the idea was that these would be genomes of a range of British species. And in fact, it was a great public engagement exercise because students in schools and from other groups were invited to lobby for what species they would like to be sequenced. And um, it's still an absolute thrill to think that the very first non-human genome in, in, in this context that we sequenced was that of the golden eagle. And there's something really iconic about the golden eagle. And so, of course, when we looked at the sample, it looked exactly the same as a human genome sample or a pathogen genome sample because it's a clear liquid. (laughs) But in there is the genome or DNA from a golden eagle. 
that's, you know, a protected, iconic species. That was really exciting. Uh, being able to say, we've just sequenced the golden eagle, there was something thrilling about it. It was this 25 genome project that, for me, felt like a real game changer. And actually, every single genome that came, there were some plants, insects, mammals, birds, etc. Every genome that came had its own challenges in terms of how do you handle the material respectfully? How do you extract the DNA so that it's then got sufficient quality to be able to generate genomes? And the, the key here is that we were trying to create so-called reference genomes. What that means is that there isn't a genome that can be used as a reference and that we need to put extra effort and extra interpretation and layer on extra technologies when we're reading a genome for the first time to create a so-called gold standard reference genome. So that was very exciting. The completion of that 25 Genomes project was so successful that it actually led to the creation of a brand new research program at Sanger, which is referred to as the Tree of Life program. And it's uh, contributing to the Earth Biogenome Project, which has the ambition of sequencing all life on Earth. So there's a Twitter feed that comes out, um, which is telling us about the latest moth or latest plant that's been sequenced and referenced. It's, it's a real thrill. Part of the job of the researchers at the Sanger Institute is to sequence pathogens. So I do have to ask you about the big pathogen that everyone knows about, about COVID-19. So what were you up to there? What did you have to do to respond to the pandemic from a sequencing perspective? When news started filtering through of the emerging pandemic, a number of the scientific leads at Sanger started to put our heads together. And I was pleased to be able to make some creative suggestions about how we might be able to use our skills, experience and scale, perhaps to deploy our capability towards helping to analyse COVID or help in some way, whether it was diagnosis or, or downstream analysis. We went along, we were invited to a meeting held at the Welcome Head Office on March the 11th, 2020. And this was a sort of a summit workshop meeting that was convened to bring together health specialists, as well as genomic analysts and pathogen specialists, as well as sort of viral genome specialists to say, what is it that we could do to help deploy our sort of genomics infrastructure across the UK to help towards healthcare diagnosis, the pandemic and research generally. And so it was from that day that um, we came back to the Sanger and so within my teams. So the decision had been made that we would need to close campus to protect our staff, but we were asked and certainly stepped up to the plate to create a really high throughput pipeline that was dedicated solely to sequencing the genomes of the COVID-19 viruses. So having never sequenced a COVID genome before, we'd had a little bit of experience of sequencing viruses, a lot more of sequencing large-scale human genomes and a lot more of sequencing large-scale pathogen genomes, bacteria in particular. So we put all of our knowledge and by the end of the first week, so one week after that welcome meeting, we'd sequenced our first 100 COVID genomes. So very quickly, we scaled up to being able to handle millions of samples every week and sequencing tens of thousands of COVID genomes. 
So there are teams now that are still sequencing COVID genomes, uh, providing national surveillance. It's at a much lower scale, though. So there are far fewer samples going through, but still samples going through every day, every week. You're now Director of Scientific Operations at the Sanger. And I did just want to talk a little bit about the role of scientific operations, because we interview a lot of researchers, professors, or these kinds of people who, you know, waving the pipettes around and doing the talks at conferences. And I think we don't really think about the role of operations in making science happen, and particularly making big science happen, whether that's something like the Sanger Institute or whether it's a you know big physics project like CERN or the telescopes that go into space. So what kind of is scientific operations and, and why is it so important in making these things happen and particularly happen at scale? Obviously, I'm biased, <laughs> but I think scientific operations is where everything happens or operations generally. Um, what we mean by, by scientific operations at a very high level is it's a department with a collection of teams of people, each of whom have got a specialist role. And what they're doing is working together and running their own particular functions to generate data, generate biological resources or relevant information that actually is creating the data for the science. We're doing it at huge scale here at Sanger, and this is what is powering the interpretation of our research. Probably most people think, oh, well, I imagine that there's a large number of laboratories and there are, and our particular areas of expertise at Sanger within scientific operation stretches from flow cytometry through to large-scale tissue culture. We have gene editing using CRISPR and other techniques. We have cellular analysis as well. We also have started to have a team of people who are specialists in relatively new so-called spatial genomics and spatial technologies but we also have a very large and probably the most well-known area is that related to sequencing. And there are a number of teams that handle different types of samples and they perform different types of sequencing techniques as well. But it's not just laboratories. We also have a core department who are responsible for developing our strategy and running all of the teams there are business services, there's change management, project management, business analysts, delivery of our strategy, relationship management that all convene that very much form the central hub of our activities that enable us to run so smoothly. We also have a team who are specialists in quality. These are quality assessment and quality assurance managers and supplementing, um, enabling us to keep at the cutting edge we have research and development scientists too. So we have to be able to make sure that we're improving all the time and enhancing our capabilities. Our research and development scientists work very closely with our faculty, with our researchers, to make sure that we're developing and building and running the most cutting edge tech. It's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you and I could carry on speaking to you all day. But before we wrap up, I wondered if there's just one particular favourite story that you have looking back over your time at the Sanger. There are many. There are many, many. I'm going to reflect on, a, I think, on a recent story because in a way it's sort of um, something that could apply over many years. It actually does go back to during the pandemic because it was such difficult and challenging times for the whole globe. And one particularly felt it um, with people that, that I worked with. 
And having found that there was a way that we felt we could contribute and make a difference during these incredibly challenging times, we crafted an email to all staff acknowledging that these were very difficult times, but asking for volunteers. And I actually cried when I saw how many people volunteered to just step up and say, actually, I, I want to be part of this. I don't care what I do. I want to be part of it. That, for me, um, reflects the culture and the values and the essence of what it is to work at Sanger's, that everyone pitches in, everyone wants to contribute, whatever the cause. And that's a key thing that certainly keeps me coming to work every day and is an incredibly fond and very positive memory. Thanks to Cordelia Langford for a fascinating conversation. And if you're interested in finding out more about what the folk at the Sanger Institute are up to, their science comms team have some great resources on the website, sanger.ac.uk, as well as all the usual social media platforms. I'll be back next time talking to zoologist and author Professor Matthew Cobb about what really went down with Watson, Crick and Franklin during the discovery of the double helix. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip, and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. I promise it does. And it does help more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learning societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo is designed by James Mayle. Audio production is by Emma Werner and the team. And our producer is Sally LePage. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.